You're listening to the Armchair Cricket Podcast. Hello all. Welcome to another episode of Armchair Cricket Podcast, a podcast focusing on test cricket by armchair critics of the game. In today's episode, we have a really special guest, a recurring guest, Mr. Alok Prasannakumar, who will join us from Bangalore. We also have our regular co-host Giri, who is going to be probably moderating our discussions. Before we get to the topics at hand, hello Alok, welcome on the Armchair Cricket Podcast. Hello, hello Ajit, hello Giri. Hello Alok, hello Ajit. How are you guys doing? Doing okay, I guess. <laughs> yeah, still managing to uh, stay safe and uh, yeah, all that. That's that's what we're trying to do, according to at yeah. least what the government is advising. So let's see. Hopefully, we'll be able to beat this soon. That is Go good ahead. news. So you know, you are in uh, a certain part of South India, Lok. I don't know if you would like to mention which city. It's up to you. But how are things there when it comes to COVID? No, uh, Bangalore is, I think, so far, and Touchwood, we have managed to ensure that it, 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 the situation isn't as bad as other cities in India. To take, uh, we could only make the right, right comparison. Uh, where we're seeing a, a surge of cases in the last one week, and hopefully that surge will also be managed. But let me just say that I have been pleasantly surprised by how well the government has managed it. I think if going by the size of the city, Bangalore is now uh, 13 million people. Delhi is 20 million, Bombay is also 18-20 million or so. All those cities have had cases in the tens of thousands. Uh, Bangalore has still had in the, has cases in the very small thousands. So, so far it's it's managed okay. Uh, let's hope that uh, the authorities and the people keep it that way. That's all we can say. That's a very good point, Adok. You know, I have a question. Hmm. Cities like Mumbai and Delhi have a very big transitory population. People who travel in and out of the city more or less on a day-to-day basis for their business. Does Bangalore have such a population, do you think? Because if you take all the satellite towns in and around Bangalore, Bidhi, all of those, yeah. including, you know, electronic city, if that were to be considered Bangalore, could this be the reason the, there is not yeah. such a large number of cases when it comes to Bangalore? No, not not really. Because this is, this is an issue which a lot of people in India have been discussing. Why has Bangalore done so well? And uh, I remember this very distinctly. I live close to palace grounds. When the government said that we will facilitate uh, movement of uh, interstate migrants, there were kilometer long, two at least two queues of two kilometers long each of people carrying bag and baggage hoping to go home. So Bangalore also has a huge migratory population and also I agree, uh, a a smaller but a sizable transitory population. What helped was that right at the start of the lockdown, the chief minister said, I'm giving four hours for transitory migrants to go back to their place of origin. So people in and around Bangalore moved out very quickly. But even otherwise, uh, what has helped Bangalore is the fact that the government has done testing, tracing, tracking and treatment very well. Uh, They have used a combination of people, boots on the ground, so to say, and technology very well to make sure that every case of COVID-19 which is detected is properly tracked, properly uh, addressed and, you know, relatively speaking, it, uh, this disease hasn't been allowed to spread. Uh, this is a disease which loves crowds, which mm-hmm. loves density. And Bangalore is a fairly dense city that way. Uh, but still, the government has been able to keep ahead of the disease uh, using all its resources, using all its uh, 
tools at its disposal. Hopefully, they'll continue to stay ahead of this disease. Uh, they've managed to do, see, it's the same strategy which will help across the world. There is no miracle vaccine. There is no miracle cure. It is very hard on the ground work, which needs to be done by bureaucrats, by health professionals, by on the ground workers. Worked in Japan, worked in Korea, worked in Taiwan, working in Kerala, currently helping us in mm -hmm. Bangalore to keep the cases down. So, which is what gives us a little bit of confidence that maybe the government can at least, you know, uh, handle this recent search. The last few days, number of cases have shot up very suddenly. Uh, let's see how they handle it and hopefully they'll be able to keep a hold on the issue. Indeed. Now, it's it's worth wait and watch because in a country like India with such a large population and as you say, with such high population density in cities and around cities, it's going to be a very difficult challenge. And indeed, the government has done a wonderful job in that province, Karnataka, right? So, that's, that, yeah. this, that's yeah. definitely something positive to look and discuss. But um, here, when it comes to Netherlands, I think we have gotten a handle on it for now, at least the first wave, so to say has come to an end here it's it never stop really the cases never stop but at least uh, when when at peak we were having 1300 1500 cases a day it's dropped to under 100 on an occasional day it goes above 100 but yeah it remains to be seen how it's going to show when uh, you know i was having some good news to share as well when it comes to cricket i we got a missive from kncb which is equivalent of pcci in the netherlands that they are planning to start leagues in the Netherlands from 1st of July, if possible. Maybe 15th of July, but even 1st of July. So they are actually happy with the way the disease has uh, sort of come under a certain amount of control in this country. So they are sort of opening it out more and more. So that's an excellent positive news, at least as far as I am concerned. Giri, are you excited? Uh, very much, yes. But I think that also coincides with what the Prime Minister just announced yesterday in that news conference, press conference, that uh, there was currently... Up until the end of this month, there was a limit of not more than 30 people within an enclosed space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that has now been increased as far as I understood. So the plan, initial plan was to have uh, a gathering of 100 people or more from the beginning of September, I think. But the government is apparently happy with uh, how things have been handled and how everything has, you know, uh, started to get under a bit of a control. Uh, so they have advanced it now and then uh, people are allowed to, um, you know, uh, get in touch with each other. Uh, although in confined spaces, you have to wear a face mask, of course, uh, in public transport and all that. Uh, what I also read was, uh, you know, the film theaters and the, and the music halls and all these places where there was a limit of 30 people that is now increased to 100. So more people will start socializing, I guess. Um, and I think it also holds well for indoor sports and gyms. Uh, I just read that they can also be opened uh, from the beginning of July, which means some indoor sports like badminton and tennis and, uh, and all that can start again. It remains to be seen, though, uh, whether every sports club will actually start doing it immediately or will they just wait and watch to see how it all unfolds in the country. Uh, but it's indeed very good news, although I do suspect that there will be probably another spike with the measures being relaxed uh, in a few days from now. There will be a spike. We'll see that in three weeks or so, two to three weeks from now. But hopefully we can still control it. I think the number of serious cases or people in intensive care uh, in the whole country is less than 100. And one point in time, I think maybe in April, we were 
uh, well over uh, 1,400 uh, people uh, with a maximum capacity of, I think, 1,800 or something in the whole country. So so that's all fine. I think we, we are beginning to have some sort of a control. Uh, although I read that Germany uh, has had an outbreak in the meat industry especially, uh, we'll have to see how it goes because, you know, the holiday season is also starting. Uh, the kids, school-going children will have holidays in two weeks from now. And uh, people will probably start looking at travel options. I know some of my colleagues uh, had booked their flights to Italy and uh, uh, in a warmer countries. And I think they will go ahead. One of my colleagues said he will go ahead with the, the holiday plan. But yeah, it's, it's all interesting. And uh, at least on the cricket uh, front, I think I'm very happy that we can at least do some sort of sports. And maybe our local club will also uh, start playing again. I'm hopeful of that. Yeah. So that's where I think we stand in the country, especially Netherlands for now. So indeed, yeah. that's fantastic news. You know, if uh, sport, sport is a good measure of how people feel and sometimes people take succor from, you know, visiting sporting events and also playing sport itself. So it's always a good, good measure of how buoyant people mm. are feeling. I think this yeah. is what we are tending towards. But okay. Yeah. Let's see how that really comes up in the upcoming few weeks. And I think we can keep our uh, audience also posted as to how things go here in the Netherlands. And hopefully, Alok, uh, you know, we'll get you again on the show so that you can give us an update from Bangalore perspective. Indeed. So moving on, let's take a quick look at some COVID-19 related cricketing news. So, you know, there are multiple countries where COVID testing of cricketers and you know, cricketing uh, administrators and so on is showing up quite a lot of cases. For example, Bangladesh, um, they have officially reported uh, three cricketers, Mashrafi Murtazan, Afis Iqbal and Nazmul Islam, have tested positive for COVID-19. Um, you have, I think, Cricket South Africa, which revealed that seven people have been uh, found to be positive, but they will not reveal the names. They have conducted more than 100 tests, was what Jacques Fowl, the acting CEO, said. right? And this could be players, this could be administrators, we don't mm-hmm. know who yet. Right. Similarly, when it comes to Pakistan, the case is slightly more serious because out of the 29 probables that they have in their uh, squad that should be going to England, 11 people have been tested positive. Yeah, yeah, we saw that. Yes. Well, I mean, at least one person has come out and said, Muhammad Hafiz has come out and said for him, it was a false positive probably because the second test showed he was not positive. So that's still 10 people out of 29. Do you think they should continue and go ahead with the tour, uh, Alok? It's, it's ultimately, well, the thing is that if they recover, and let's also keep in mind that a large number of, uh, a, a vast majority of people with COVID-19 are asymptomatic. And uh, given that, I don't think they will be traveling out of UK. And even in the UK, they will be tested. Uh, at least in so far as the tour, I think it can go ahead. But it is a huge risk that they're taking. And uh, the UK... Cricket authorities seem hell-bent on taking this risk. Now, I don't know for what reason, but maybe it is purely financial. Maybe they want to project this sense of normality about things. But we have seen that in the UK, even the Premier League has begun to function. Mm -hmm. uh, They're playing football. They're playing before empty grounds. But the Premier League has uh, begun uh, their games. So maybe cricket feels the pressure not to be left behind. So, maybe a West Indies series, which will begin in July, in the first week of July, will give us a better sense of how England plan to manage it. The good thing, of course, is that if you've already gotten it and you've tested negative and are no longer spreading it, then it's much easier for the tour to go ahead. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, people should just throw caution to the winds and not worry about it. 
I think it also reflects uh, something has. Uh, it also reflects that the situation is pretty serious in Pakistan. That uh, you know, uh, a large number of cricketers are testing uh, positive. Uh, it's not like they have emergency or frontline workers that who expose themselves to the virus. So maybe it is it is worth uh, for the Pakistan you know, cricket board to at least reassess, if nothing else. Maybe the tour needs to go on for both Pakistan and England's sake. But they need to seriously reassess whether it's worth the risk. And depending on that, I think maybe then the tour might or might not go ahead. Ah, makes sense. But Wasim Khan, the CEO of PCB, seems very bullish. He says they will be planning to go ahead with the tour. At least for now, as you say, it's probably a mutually beneficial thing financially when it comes to that. Let me put it like that. Right? Both boards would stand to benefit if Pakistan were to tour UK. And let's, let's not forget that at the end of the day, what makes money for cricket is the television broadcasting rights. And given that right now there is so other little, there's very little competition from other sports uh, in terms of uh, attention, this is an opportunity perhaps, and again, subject to safety concerns, for cricket to show that it is possible to play the game safely and help in restoring some sense of normality. But again, how much normality, we don't know how, I mean, at least UK is also still one of the most affected countries when it comes to uh, covid uh, if Pakistan wants to risk sending, I mean, to me, it is not so much Pakistan which is at risk, which is, I still think people in the UK are at risk. I mean, we've seen that the West Indies players have been in quarantine for two weeks uh, before uh, the first, uh, I mean, as soon as they landed in the uh, UK and ahead of the first test. I know they'll be playing it in front of empty stands, but there is also a question to be asked how, what are the plans to keep the players safe? You know, when they're going and coming, they'll be going in the same bus. Uh, they'll be exposed to the same, the same hotel and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of things to worry about. Um, and if it works well, it works well. It's good for everyone. We can know that some kind of normality because at some point we will have to move things back to normal. How do we do it in a safe manner so that things can go back to the way they were? I think is the real uh, issue before us. Indeed. It remains to be seen if some of these logistical issues you pointed out are indeed very challenging. Yeah. But for the sake of cricket itself, they have to be tackled and maybe there will be iterations of you know getting it better 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 but it looks like we are going to live with covid for the foreseeable future so you might as well start tackling them and trying to come up with the right sort of an approach and maybe in an iterative way a better one every time right and considering sports people are uh, mostly in a very peak physical fitness and under a certain age i'm going to sound a bit uh, caustic here but i think they can take it they they can be indeed the, uh, let's say, the way in which we test how group activities can happen. But, but let me also clarify here that it doesn't... So, what we are seeing is that mortality may be low. Uh, that is, it is statistically, we are seeing that there is very low mortality for people less than the age of 60 and it spikes above the age of 60. But the impact of COVID is not so easily predictable. There was this um, article, uh, well, not an article, it's a real-life story. Uh, about two months ago, about this uh, lawyer in uh, New York called David Latt, he got COVID mm. and likewise his partner with him. Both of them got COVID. David Latt is a marathoner, peak physical shape, you know, in, in his early 40s and very fit in that way. And his partner, not so much. But the virus was very mild in his partner who got a little bit of a fever, a little bit of a cough and cold and was fine. But David Ladd himself had to be hospitalized and put into the ICU. And he, he writes about how at some points it was so difficult for him to even use the bathroom. Just that 
taking the 10 steps from his bed to go to the bathroom was becoming almost impossible. He felt like he would collapse. So it's 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 not an easy, it's, it's not a straightforward correlation that just because you are young, you will be able to withstand COVID or that you because you are fit, you will be able to withstand COVID. There are a lot of uh, other aspects to be considered uh, to, in understanding how this particular virus might affect us. There might be some genetic factors also that we don't know. Yeah. I think that's also true if you uh, remember what happened to uh, somebody who tried to test this himself by organizing a social event uh, a few days ago, Novak Djokovic, the famous tennis player, right? So he has infected himself and also other fellow uh, professional tennis players like uh, Dimitrov and uh, uh, there was one more guy. I think Zverev probably is not yet affected. But, you know, uh, coming back to the point, I think... It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are and how fit you are. Uh, I think COVID, uh, the virus acts in several different ways and people feel it differently or have, feel the impact of it in a different way. So we, we cannot uh, play down the issue of uh, getting the infection. I think it's still going to be pretty hard for every, anybody who is trying to recover from it. Uh, but yeah, we have to start somewhere and then this might be a good uh, thing to do, you know, cricket. But, you know, Boris Johnson, in his recent statement, he has not helped the cause. Uh, I think he has said something like, the ball is a natural vector of the disease or something like that in the in the parliament. You, did you read that, Ajit? Well, you know, Boris Johnson has this foot-in-the-mouth disease, right? We know that. I mean, it's okay. Um, considering that he has the propensity to sort of spell out certain things in a weird way. It's okay. I mean, I don't expect any better. But look, he's not the premier of where I live. It's okay. I, for me, he's a very entertaining person. And in any case, I would never use those words to, even if I had a very strong point to make, the ball is not the vector of this disease. That's an extreme way of putting it. But apparently, he's very, very serious about uh, this. And he himself doesn't look very sporty, maybe. I sense a bit of uh, you know, jealousy there, Kiri. Yeah, and he has just also recovered himself huh, from uh, the, the infection. He was infected a few weeks ago, right? So he's probably speaking because of his own personal experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, not to downplay it, but just those the choice of those words were fairly funny for me. Um, <laughs> well, in any case, it remains to be one of the curious points to see because at some point in time, bilateral tours have to start off. And that means the better, um, let's say, chances are... That at some point in time, if you kick it off, you might as well do it uh, in such a way that you can do it in a nicely protected manner. And some some questions will have to be tackled for sure. But let's see how that goes. But, you know, right at the back of this comes uh, some good news that, you know, Indian Cricketers Association um, has raised about 7.8 million Indian rupees and have helped more than 16 AD cricketers or their families who have been suffering from COVID-19. This is a very nice gesture. Again, we see multiple cricketing boards getting involved in this. And, um, you know, this IC is a very new body. It was started off, I think, just two years ago or so. Uh, does this board well, do you think, for future, uh, you know, uh, what we can expect from ICA in the future, uh, Alok? It will depend on how much they take on the BCCI. Uh, to me, this is fine. I think... It'll, it'll be a while. As a cricketer's body, I see that their role has to be to counter the BCCI's, I mean, if I have to use economic terms, the monopsony power that BCCI has in uh, buying cricketer's services, um, whether it is through the IPL or for test cricket and so on and so forth. Uh, the ICA should give players an independent voice and should allow them to be able to take positions different from the BCCI and a lot of things. And put them on an equal footing with BCCI. Today, yes, 
maybe a kohli maybe a dhoni maybe an ashwin might have enough uh, standing might have enough backing and sponsorship to take them on but uh, how much can your regular ranji trophy cricketer or even your regular ipl uh, non star player how much can they push back against the bcci and stuff and the fact that to me it is the ica and not the bcci which is helping uh, tells me something about the bcci and its priorities um it, it should have i mean given that bcci has like thousands and thousands of crores in its kitty uh, in terms of what it has built up over the years i think the bcci should have been a little bit more generous on this front i mean i remember reading recently that uh, there were a lot of uh, under 19 and under 21 players who whose entire families depend on their uh, stipends that they get from playing cricket their their payments had been delayed by bcci and they were very worried about whether it would come or not it eventually it has come but i think this is not a situation which should have happened at all i think bcci should have moved first to say that cricketers in india need not worry their livelihoods are not under threat yes there will be no cricket for the next foreseeable future six months at least but we will not allow that to come in the way of cricketers livelihood i think the bcci should have sent out that message very loud and clear but instead we see that they are doing some sort of nonsense when it comes to chinese sponsorships and so on and so forth so i question the priorities of the organization as we should always do now that it's always good to have somebody challenge the establishment it's not a problem and in any case they could actually send out better messaging in terms of both what they put out in media but also in terms of their actions for sure right for a body as august and as yeah. rich as bcci you are absolutely right certain things like non payment need not be excused if you were to look at some of the other covid related topics you know bangladesh was supposed to have a new zealand tour and of course this is expected that new zealand will cancel but bangladesh have also cancelled their sri lanka tour again something that was expected along expected lines so given this climate i think we can also give a little bit of credit if this tour were to go on to both the pakistan cricket team as well as the west indian team who have actually arrived in england so they both will probably set the precedent in the upcoming weeks and months as to how you know cricket in the time of corona can happen all right moving further now if you were to look at some of the other off field cricketing news there is another interesting point i would like to discuss with you as well alok so i don't know if you saw this article recently that you know bcci is going to review its ipl sponsorship deals following what is happening on in the ladakh region in the tensions between india and china so you know there are multiple multiple ways in which bcci is sort of beginning to appear as an extended arm of the indian government this is one of the examples the other example i would like to give you is indeed the one we discussed off air that you know there has been a very interesting response by bcci to pakistan cricket board's questions about visa availability and so on right so what are your thoughts on this should should bcci look to you know be outside of these sort of discussions because we already covered it when you brought up uh, you know mr hawk and uh, a certain don radman but is is it very far from such a situation here or what do you think should bcci no, i think i think it has been a slow progress it hasn't happened overnight um i but i think the politicization when i say politicization i mean the bcci acting in accordance with the whims of the political party at the center is complete what used to be what used to still call itself a private body maintaining distance from the government and people will remember that famous argument in court in 2005 that players play for bcci not for quote unquote india um is uh, we have come a very long way from it and i think that process which was begun when bcci started making a lot of money and attracting 
attention of politicians is now complete. Mm-hmm. Um, BCCI sees itself, BCCI acts, and BCCI is perceived to be um, a wing of the government. And uh, we don't know wh- where this will lead to because when this has happened, it has been very bad for the sport. Um, in in other sports, it has led to India facing into India nearly being banned from uh, international events, and that had to be reversed. Uh, we have seen that other countries have been banned. We have fi- we found in cricket, for instance, uh, Zimbabwe uh, was banned for a certain period of time because of excessive government interference. Sri Lanka had this problem. Um, this is this is this is a dangerous path that we are on, and both the examples that you mentioned, they're not like this is not an organization. Taking its decisions in the interest of cricket, it is organized. It is an organization taking decisions in the interest of uh, the political class of the day. And the ironic thing to all of this is that all of this comes after the Supreme Court's efforts to try and depoliticize cricket. Um, the Supreme Court spent a lot of time, energy, and a lot of resources in trying to make cricket free of political and pure commercial interests. But unfortunately, that whole thing has been rolled back because part of the Supreme Court has moved on to doing other things in life. And nobody's been able to follow up on the NODA committee reforms in the agenda. And what we are now seeing is like the completion of the process by which the BCCI has become like the arm of the state. And this is going to have some very grave implications for cricket moving forward. And I I wonder and I worry if uh, cricket is going to suffer from this end. Come on, let's, let's, let's be realistic. They're not going to cancel uh, Vivo's sponsorship mm. of the IPL. Uh, somebody really po- recently pointed out that for all of this uh, great social media outrage over Chinese phones or Chinese this and that, uh, a Chinese brand which launched a flash sale on Amazon mm. uh, yesterday sold out in like a matter of minutes. So clearly, clearly this is all posturing. Clearly, this is all to send out an image that you know BCCI stands firmly with the government of India. Even though everyone knows it's not going to impact its commercial interests in this matter, so that I think we have to be a little bit cynical about the BCCI's motives. I think I think you've you've covered most of the points. The only thing is, at least you don't have not a lot of, or you don't have very many active politicians really sitting in the BCCI offices. But apparently, they are still pulling the strings from outside of the of windows. Of There's no doubt. Moving on in a bit of a blow. You know the three TC format, which we have previously discussed. You know this this could have been a new way of really playing cricket in a slightly less challenging way, if I may put it like that, compared to the hundred. But it looks like this this format has run in, run run into choppy waters here because uh, South African government is denying uh, approval for this format to be tried out in South Africa, and there are some other issues like nepotism, where Boucher is projected as one of the uh, you know profiteers or one of the beneficiaries. Of this specific format and so on. What are your thoughts on that, Alok? I'd say why mess with a good product? Uh, I mean, uh, to to use an example that is often used in the marketing world, uh, why change Coca-Cola's formula? It has worked for so many years. Uh, people still watch Test cricket, maybe not in as many numbers as they used to before, but people still care. If you see the TV ratings, it shows there are hundreds and thousands, if not millions, of people who care for Test cricket and watch it. There are people who want to watch ODI cricket. There are people who want to watch T20 cricket. Mm. Uh, the basic, uh, yes, we can increase the length of the games. We can tweak around with some of the rules. But to me, something like 3TC doesn't sound like cricket at all. Um, cricket is still a game between two teams, between bat and ball. Uh, to suddenly bring three teams, 36 overs. And I, I think that's the kind of tweaking that the game doesn't really call for. Um, 
and I, I again three formats i think i don't think any other sport as far as i know has tried to experiment with more than three four formats for the I main thing i don't see i don't foresee this 3pc thing taking forward going forward that much uh, unless they're of course able to pull off a marketing miracle that was done with t20 cricket i mean t20 cricket filled a definite need there was research behind why t20 cricket came into existence let's not forget that t20 cricket wasn't just a bunch of four or five people sitting around the chair and saying yeah let's come up with t20 cricket the problem that t20 cricket solved was that cricket was no longer attracting young people cricket was no longer attracting women cricket was no longer seen as a cool sport for lack of a better word uh, and t20 cricket has made cricket cool so in a sense it has not taken away from the other two formats it has in fact added to it so unless this 3tc format is shown to be actually beating some problem with the way cricket is perceived or some issue in the way in which the other three formats of cricket are not fulfilling their uh, requirements i don't see any purpose for this well i mean the opposition that was offered by the south african government was not a ideological one like what you are what you are projecting are all ideological uh, let's say opposition i don't know the specifics of who's running it so which is why right so no they are more like uh, they don't have clearance from the you know the sports body in the country and so on and so on and i think it might even be uh, the way i look at it maybe the government wants to get in on the action possible, possible. right so it was i don't think they opposed on a on the grounds of uh, you know uh, that it was ideologically sort of opposed to how cricket is normally played but in any case we will keep a close eye on this specific space because i i somehow expect more to come out of it yet there's still a bit of life in the story for me let's see how that goes right moving on well in a bit of a blow rajinder goel uh, who was 77 and who passed away recently he was the the highest wicket taker in ranji trophy matches and probably one of the most you know experienced spinners and also one of the best exponents of you know the traditional left arm spin who never got to represent india uh, what are your thoughts on this alok i have never seen him play uh, i was too young i suppose to have seen him play or i only know him by his record and the fact that other players speak very highly of him uh, but yeah. rajinder goel is an example i suppose of a time when you had 11 spots and you had all of it determined by a bunch of five uh, men who decisions were questionable in most of the time somebody like rajinder goel i think in the present day and age would have really made a name for himself uh, simply because of the width of the opportunity available even if he didn't make it to the 11 on this first even if there was a better bowler at that time keeping him out of the team he would have gotten a much wider audience to show his skills um, i don't even know if there are too many videos of rajinder goel bowling ranji trophy games i don't think were televised or there was video recording also and it's very unfortunate we may not have too much by way of uh, video evidence of one of i mean let's just be honest about it one of india's greatest spinners he may not have played for the indian team but just his record and the words of his peers tell us that he was definitely one of india's greatest spinners and he just didn't have the luck to have played for the indian team at the right time at the right moment uh maybe somebody like him in the present day and age would have found an opportunity in county cricket would have found an opportunity in ipl may have found an opportunity uh, playing in one of the many leagues around the world where somebody of his talent would clearly be valued so perhaps i think which it shows us that you know as much as we may talk about a golden past for all these things the opportunities are much greater for players these days and true uh, and maybe 
Rajinder Goel's record of the 700 and something odd wickets will never be broken. That Ranji Trophy record and that first class actually he's the first leading first class wicket taker in India also. I don't think that record will ever be broken. But also somebody of his talent will not go unrecorded, unappreciated, unviewed to an extent that he was. Indeed. I mean, look, there was this uh, argument. He himself was a reticent sort of a character and he would not get involved in things, but he was always a very dedicated team man, right? Sometimes people like this get uh, tend to get pushed to the background. Yeah. This is one of the things. But the other thing I would like to, you know, this will throw a bit of a spanner in the works, but I'll put it out there. Mm-hmm. If he were to be from a different region of India, mm-hmm. let's say the Western region, mm-hmm. maybe he would have had more opportunities. You know, there was always Padmakar Shivalkar who was right. also from the western part of India but really could not break into the squad thanks to the same quartet, right? There was one of each sort. So, they always kept better spinners out. Padmakar Shivalkar was himself a very good spinner, no doubt. But I somehow get the feeling there may also have been a bit of regionism. I'm sure this this played a part in many a cricketer in yesteryear's um, you know, career. But at least these days, as you say, with far more video coverage and far more exposure, I think he may have had more opportunities. You have you have it spot on there, uh, Alok. Yeah, yeah I, it could be, but but I, again, I'm, I'm not a. I, I haven't followed say the BCCI politics of those days uh, in terms of who selected whom and for what. And uh, I, I was recently watching uh, YouTube has uploaded this series of videos where Nasir Hussain came to Bombay, I think about a year ago, and spoke to leading cricketers from Bombay about Bombay cricket. And I remember Sunil Gavaskar and Ravi Shastri talking about the time during the 60s, 70s and 80s, where getting into the Bombay team was probably more difficult than getting into the Indian team. Nice. <laughs> right? Where, where you know, that the standard of play at Bombay was so much greater than the rest of the country. And it was reflected in their Ranji Trophy record, their Irani record and all of that. Uh, that getting into the Bombay team was considered so much harder. That I think that you know, maybe we did miss out on some talent, if that is true, if that is actually a reflection of reality. Maybe we did miss out some talent simply because there was a belief that, you know, no, no, you have to have a quota from each region of this country. You have to have players from the north, east, west, south, whatever. whatever. Right. But I think, uh, I, I suppose maybe there is some truth to the claim that perhaps Rajinder Goel from a different part of the country may have been taken a lot more seriously by that. But again, uh, that is a little bit of speculation and it's possible that both Bedi and him being from North India, uh, Rajinder from Haryana and uh, Bedi from Punjab and Delhi, uh, might have worked against him. But that didn't affect, say, for example, uh, Prasanna and Chandrasekhar. Indeed. Uh, both were from Karnataka and uh, both played uh, for the state. And we had three three of the great spinners came from yeah. the south, southern part of India, Venkatraguan, Prasanna and uh, Chandrasekhar. So, uh, maybe it is, it's, it's just a combination of the fact that he was one of a great generation. Uh, and to possibly that by nature he was not somebody to push himself forward and you know uh, was seen more as a team man than an individually brilliant uh, player and uh, three there may have been some element of the fact that you know all regions in India need to be represented and therefore he missed out on that uh, particular uh, aspect of it so maybe you know we, 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 the truth is still waiting to be told but I but uh, undoubtedly I think it is, he's a, one of India's greatest winners. Indeed. You know, that more or less wraps up most of the topics we had planned. Uh, there are a couple of uh, you know small topics, you know, Rachel Priest, the former New Zealand international, has retired from international cricket. So we wish her all the best when it comes to her future career. I think she'll continue it in Australian domestic cricket. 
Paul Sterling uh, has been named Ireland vice captain across formats. It's a well-deserved promotion, we would say. And also, it's sort of timely keeping an eye on the future, considering that, you know, uh, Porterfield and Swan are uh, very much in the sunset of their career. So, all interesting topics. But, uh, you know, a quick word. Chris Gale has opted out of CPL T20 this season. Is, is it that the Universal boss is afraid of Corona or is it something else, do you think, Alok? I think his powers are on the way. Ah. I think he's finally acknowledging that uh, it's time to step aside for younger players uh, and to ride off into the sunset, so to speak. Um, I suppose Chris Gale is by far the most transformative player for T20 cricket. There'll be no dispute about that. About that. His legacy is secure on that front. And I think um, it's best that he sort of calls time on his career when everybody's asking why and not why not. Uh, so, which is why I think uh, if, if, if and I, I suspect, I mean, could be wrong entirely, if it is that age is catching up with him, that he would uh, rather uh, spend his time limiting the amount of cricket that he plays, this might be a good call on his part to allow for talent to come through. Uh, and hopefully that, you know, he, he puts, he, he brings a close to what has been a glorious uh, cricketing career uh, to end in us on his own terms. No, indeed. Well said. So, let's really hope, you know, if that is the case, it's time for the universe bo- yeah. boss to hang up his boots. Let's see how that comes through. Moving on, let's take a look at the trivia section. So, the trivia question from the previous episode was, uh, which bowler has the best match bowling analysis in England-West Indies, West Indies tests? So, with West Indian tour of England coming up, this is the question we had asked. Any guesses, Alok? What could be the answer? Is it is it like a uh, innings figure or the match figure? match figure? Match figure. Mm-hmm. Match figure, I would say, uh, is probably Michael Holding. You're right. Would you like to mention the match if you know the match as well? The match is the uh, Oval Test match of 1975, if I'm not mistaken. Damn close. 76. 76. Yeah. The, we will make them grovel tour. And, uh, yeah, like the yes. Yeah, yes. It's that one. And uh, 14 yeah. for uh, 149 at the Oval. A fantastic, fantastic bowling display. And what is still a fairly uh, evenly contested pitch, right? It's the one where both sides have equal chance. So, for a tearaway bowler to actually come good on such a pitch is a fantastic achievement. So, this has still remained a record. I don't know if somebody in the upcoming tour will probably break this. It will be lovely to see this, right? Absolutely. So, the trivia question from this episode is very much related to Rajinder Goel. And thanks a lot for stepping around it. So, the question is a very simple one. How many wickets did Rajinder Goel take in Ranji Trophy matches? Okay. So, you actually highlighted a number, which is actually his overall career record. First class cricket. Indeed. Question from this episode. I think you probably know it. You can let us know off air, right? Yes. All right. Whenever we have you on this uh, podcast, we learn a lot, Alok. And today was no different we had a wonderful chat and we got to explore some let's say murky corners of cricket if i may call them that so yeah as always we would like to say thanks to you thank you uh, and it was my pleasure to be on this podcast i always enjoy our discussions cover so many different fields and so many different uh, aspects of the game it's always a pleasure for me thanks a lot would you like to maybe plug any of your you know you keep writing for info and stuff would you like to plug any of your uh, recent let's say articles or your social media i i haven't i haven't written about cricket in a while ah. uh, actually uh, and uh, well th- those of you who uh, who want to check out the uh, the cricket for article that i mentioned earlier in the podcast it's called crime and punishment it was published in 2017 in the cricket monthly uh, do go check it out uh, it is a data driven analysis of uh, a match referee penalties imposed on cricket. 
right now we'll probably provide a link to this in our episode notes as well so that our listeners can easily find it so thanks a lot once again my pleasure we've had a wonderful chat and we've gone through all the topics so with the england uh, cricketing season about to begin i think we have a lot to look forward to in the upcoming episodes as well sure so having said all that it's a goodbye from me and uh, goodbye thank you for having me on the podcast and goodbye from me as well bye guys you're listening to the armchair cricket podcast